0: Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge mini episode 1237. This is FDH Managing Partner Rick Morris here, and we have part two of our review of The Last Dance and the next segment here in our Coronavirus Crisis 2020 series. Of course, FDH NBA analyst Ben Chu and myself did uh, an analysis of this previously and went through the series, gave the review, gave our thoughts, but, uh, and Ben is back uh, today, FDH lounge dignitary Bob Glassman had some thoughts on this, that there have been some reverberations in the media, in pop culture since the series and that it would be interesting to take another look back and uh, look at some of these sort of dangling threads, if you will, the things that have stayed out there and that we are still talking about as people react to what was uh, asserted during the show and uh, as we sort of get a sense of what is true and what is not true. We we certainly have uh, some more idea of things that are and are not true since then. So a great idea by Bob Glassman. And, uh, Bob, a pleasure to have you back on the show, my friend.
1: Rick, it's a uh, great company. I'm humbled to be uh, with you and Ben, as always.
0: Well, I, I know we're both uh, very happy to be on with you, and uh, it is always a great pleasure to be on with my good friend, Ben Chu, who not only we were talking about this recently, but uh, Ben had had the idea as well. Dignitaries have been coming up with a lot of great ideas recently here. We did a little bit of a talk on the streaming services here on uh, Quibi. On HBO Max, which uh, I have since gotten in the last couple of days and really started to enjoy. And uh, again, that was a great conversation as well, Ben. uh, I know we didn't necessarily anticipate uh, that we'd be back on this subject here, but it turns out there was more aftermath of this, I think, than we expected at the time. So a lot of threads for us to discuss today, and I'm glad you're back. Well, I appreciate
2: it, Rick. Do I get overtime pay for
0: this? (laughs) Yeah. Send say per a conversation we were all having a minute ago. Send the bill to boat shoes, <laughs> 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 and I'll I will take it off his tab. But uh, yeah, that is uh, uh, it. It is great to get a, a reunion of some of the old uh, Sports Talk Network uh, comrades here, uh, the place where we all met back in the day. And uh, again, Bob Glassman, uh, you had the idea for this uh, follow up. Uh, Bob, to talk about some more of these threads that are out there, some of the dangling participles, if you will, if, if you want to get to sentence diagramming about the whole thing here. And uh, it, I think a lot of it goes back to, and this is something Ben and I talked about, uh, when, when people are questioning the accuracy of the last dance. And I said at the time, it, it doesn't work as a great piece of journalism in terms of accuracy, because it's the world according to Michael Jordan. He almost certainly had final cut the way that this was uh, playing out. But as far as an accurate look at one man's mind, inside the mind of madness, if you will, it is an accurate look. And I think that ties to some of the lingering questions about his veracity that have come out of this. And I know that those have been some of the most fascinating questions in your mind, particularly how we now have the proof that both he and Rod Thorne were lying about blackballing. Isaiah Thomas from the Dream Team, the audio has surfaced there. We have had him being questioned uh, by Horace Grant for some of the assertions that he made as far as being the snitch for the Jordan Rules book. We have had that in terms of the pizza shop that may very well have been victimized by false accusations from Michael Jordan, now saying he's full of crap. We didn't give him food poisoning for that game in the finals in Utah the veracity of Michael Jordan, probably unsurprisingly, really under attack in the aftermath of this documentary.
1: True, true, Rick, uh, but uh, I will begin by giving kudos to uh, a the, the point of view uh, piece that went out over five weeks, and uh, it was riveting, and uh, there was no doubt, nobody ever uh, doubted, led by Mr. Kent Byrne, that this was not a true documentary, but uh, Michael Jordan's point of view. So at least that was never hidden from uh, anything that was said up front. So, you know, there was no there was no line going on, per se, in terms of that this was just 100% of a documentary. So for that, it, and it was very compelling, and obviously during these times uh, very much needed uh, entertainment.
0: Definitely so. And... It, it, it almost seems like, I mean, this isn't necessarily a genre that exists, but I'm kind of thinking of this right now, almost if there was a genre of, like, say, the video memoirs, because this was so from the eyes of Michael Jordan all the way through, that's really basically what this was. If you view this in the context of his memoirs, uh, I think it makes it a little bit easier to understand for what it is, and I will... Harken back to uh, one of my more obscure interests that I have, which is Australian politics. Former Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull just released his memoirs in the last couple of weeks, and he was in office from uh, 2015 to 2018. It was a very turbulent period of time. Uh, He had uh, taken over, he overthrew somebody in his own party to become Prime Minister. The same thing happened to him three years later. And this book is him telling, basically the story according to Malcolm Turnbull from throughout his political career and even before. And it's a thing where if you look at it that way, it's, well, this is what he's saying went on. It's not necessarily the absolute truth. So if you view The Last Dance in the same way, I think that's the best possible context. It's what Michael Jordan is saying what happened, not necessarily what did happen.
1: Very true, Rick. I, I You know, it, it could start just a new genre of, obviously, there have been a, a number of books, uh, well known, well versed, uh, that are personal memoir oriented. And this was really one of the first visual elements that, that take, that took written prose, but made it into a compelling, uh, television piece.
0: That's kind of what I thought, uh, too. Before I pivot to, uh, to, to Ben, I want to get some of your thoughts on specifically the veracity of Michael Jordan in some of these areas, uh, too. He was proven to be lying, as was Rod Thorne on the Isaiah Thomas question. Listen, we all pretty much knew that that was the case. I think we maybe all thought it was more of a wink and a nod of him blackballing him as opposed to, I ain't coming if he's coming, which is what it turned out to be. But there's that. There's the whole thing of him and Horace Grant back and forth. The one thing, as I said previously on our Part 1 review of this, is uh, the documentary lost a lot of credibility by airbrushing Horace Grant so much out of the history of the first three championships, because it really was a big three. He was a big part of the big three, uh, then, even if he was the third piece, and a di- if relatively distant third, but still part of the big three nonetheless. So on that question, and, and on some of these other questions here, too, about the food poisoning uh, and everything like that. Uh, what's your sense the last couple of weeks in terms of digesting the fallout of this, and what people have had to say about what Michael Jordan asserted about them in so many instances?
1: Well, I guess just to start out with on the on the Horace Grant thread, an interesting thing uh, being a Cavaliers fan uh, is is that Horace Grant was very instrumental and help me take down the Cavaliers. Yes. Uh yeah. And uh, that got that got a lot of local play, which was interesting. And and also, you know, noted that he was left out of much of it. Um, the 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 part that the assertions of the that he was the tell off to Sam Smith and the Jordan rules, uh and him vehemently denying that you know, was was a, a good point of interest. Uh, It it, it goes to show that, as we talked about, a a good sports rumor is a good sports rumor. Sam Smith and Horace Grant were good friends. Thus, there's only so many people who could have been uh, the tell-alls. It must have been Horace Grant, and that seemed to make sense, and and that was the rationale pointed out there, and Horace Grant has gone out of his way. I, I don't think personally, again, michael jordan's character but just to say no that he you know that he, i think any professional athlete does never want to be known as a snitch i mean I there's i can't think of a thing of a quality of a, pro, of a professional athlete that would be considered worse than that so that was the first point i was uh interested
0: in uh in hearing guys reaction very much so yeah and we'll we'll revisit the other ones here in a second i agree with you I agree with everything you said about Horace Grant and the 92 Cavs. There have probably been 10 different mini-episodes of this show where I've talked about the 92 East Finals and how he destroyed us because, uh, again, getting those offensive rebounds for Jordan and Pippen, allowing those possessions to continue and just break our backs. uh, As a Cavs fan, uh, Horace Grant uh, devastated them in that series. And uh, so, yeah, I I, I certainly thought that that was a thing where any documentary that doesn't pay enough credence to Horace Grant's role in the first three titles is somewhat suspect to begin with, much less once you start to get into who do you believe, Horace Grant or Michael Jordan. Well, let's see, who do I believe? Uh, the, The guy who airbrushed the other guy out of history or the guy who was objecting to his treatment in the documentary? I think I would probably side with the latter, uh, ben, you as a basketball historian, you and I have talked about this before and Horace Grant's role on those teams there. So uh, wh- what's your thoughts about the latest uh, Horace Grant, Michael Jordan, Kerfluffle? <coughs> Yeah, that's an excellent point, and I think, again, the, the documentary touched on it sort of briefly in terms of Horace Grant was happy to get uh, revenge on the Bulls uh, that the year that Jordan came back in the playoffs, but it was framed more as the, the continuing narrative through the 90s of the Bulls not wanting to pay salaries, and that the Bulls let him walk away, go to Orlando, take that fat contract rather than pay him, so it was within that construct as opposed to talking anything else about him, and again, giving extraordinarily short shrift to the important role that he played on the first three championship teams. So, yeah, Bob, that's our thoughts uh, on that. Uh, I, I think they're pretty similar to your uh, thoughts. On on Jordan's veracity here, uh, let's go next to the whole thing of the pizza and the pizza delivery thing here, and a story that seems... Very, very easy to pick it apart, as the folks from the restaurant did subsequently. And i got to say, too, I mean, this is one of these things where, unless you are one gazillion percent certain that it is what happened, and, oh, by the way, shouldn't there have been a little bit of alarm bells in your head? How do you scarf down the pizza if you were suspicious in the first place? So, all this kind of stuff. But it's one of the crappiest things you can do is to drag the name of an innocent small business through the mud if, indeed, they didn't do anything. So on that one there, the burden of proof always lies with the accuser, uh, Bob, in my estimation. I'll just give you my thoughts up front. What are your thoughts on Jordan versus the pizza guys?
1: Interesting the fact, Rick, that um, that you probably could look back in investigative journalism and and find out, and I know there has been stories about that particular pizza parlor that delivered the pizza, but they could have meant, you know, they could have gone more in depth and mentioned names and, you know, we ordered pizza from X restaurant and they decided not to because, uh, then, then they could be setting themselves up for something that, that could be litigious at this, even at this point in time unless it's past, uh, uh, the time of, of litigation for that. Uh, but the, 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 the story with, it, part of it with the five people delivering the pizza and there was no place else open and it just, it, it just, it lent itself to a, a dramatization. I think that's, that's the best way that I could describe it. And, uh, no more than that. Uh, it, it was, and I guess the interesting rift in that the that the fallback has been no, Michael had a few pops that the night before and wasn't feeling great because of that reason, and you know that, that opened up that other little can of worms or rumor that uh, what did
0: cause the the, uh, the stomachache per se. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean that makes it all the more uh just. Absolutely crappy if that's what happened, and again, if an innocent business is getting dragged through the mud for no good reason. This is one of these things, and I know you'll appreciate this, Bob, but uh, Ben, my sense in uh, this whole thing, in the story that Jordan was telling, and just like the freaky amount of detail and stuff, maybe it's from the fact that uh, I've been watching uh, so much curvier enthusiasm during the lockdown, but it almost sounds like Jordan telling a George Costanza story. Something that George Costanza would embellish and just come up with all these extra frivolous details just to make it sound good. So color me skeptical on the whole thing, Ben.
1: Well, I'm
2: Maybe he was dealing with a little more of an altitude sickness because this was the third game that they had played.
0: And uh, although, uh, again, for for those of us that are Cavs fans, uh, unfortunately the shot will always rank up there. But, uh, you know, there are any number of memorable moments. But, yes, the flu game and the shot that he hit to win the flu game, that's always one of those things. And as somebody where, again, I I always rolled my eyes at a lot of that stuff because, again, he was the nemesis of my favorite team uh, back then. So I was never a guy that rooted for Jordan under any circumstances uh, much like, uh, again, if you were uh, a Pistons fan, you wouldn't have rooted for uh, Jordan. If you were a Knicks fan, you wouldn't have rooted for Jordan, et cetera, et cetera. The teams that were arch rivals of his at one time or another. So I rolled my eyes at uh, his big moments that didn't even involve the Cavs, uh, but that's me as a competitive Cavs fan. But uh, so I, I think, again, we're all more or less, I think, on the same subject as far as not necessarily taking that whole narrative at face value and then, uh, Bob, the one thing where, again, none of this is in dispute, I think, at this point, because there's audio, the the audio that resurfaced, I think I heard that this was from a 2011 podcast, it's amazing if it could have been under the radar that long, I don't, so I don't know for sure if that's where it came from, but the audio about Jordan and Rod Thorne and the conversation of it ain't gonna happen, I ain't playing if Isaiah's there, of having it on the record... We knew it was a lie all along. We knew that Isaiah was blackballed all along. He was one of the 12 best players in the world. And I say that as somebody who loathes Isaiah as a Cavs fan. But fair is fair. He was one of the 12 best players in the world, probably one of the best seven or eight at minimum, and maybe even better than that still in 92. So, Bob, that entire thing now, there is no more debate. It's been settled once and for all by that audio. And, uh, you
1: know, being also, and don't hold it against me, because uh, they just became friends. Uh, Bill Langbeer and Kenny Carr became friends of mine when uh, uh, the hotel I was working at... That uh, happens. ...at Steffian, had his uh, had training camp at, and when Kenny and Bill got traded to Detroit, my brother and I went up there, and that started a friendship with the Pistons that lasted uh, a number of years and got to know everybody relatively well, and those were innocent times where you could get in the locker room and, and, and know a certain amount of things. Uh, the one thing that, that came out of that that nobody ever really questioned is that, uh, supposedly Chuck Daly said he didn't want any part of having, uh, Thomas on the team either. And that was, there, there was no rebuttal to that. Uh, Thomas was the star that made Chuck Daly, uh, you know, wear wonderful suits and win a few championships. And, uh, I just was wondering your thoughts about, the, about the lack of, of that reason being mentioned, but there is no rebuttal to that. Like, why would Chuck Daly not want uh, Isaiah on the team?
0: It is pretty weird, and I will say, uh, first of all, that uh, as far as what you said about being uh, friends with uh, Wayne Beer, nothing to feel bad about there. It would be presumptuous on my part right now to count Vance Johnson as a friend, but he's been on the show twice. And I feel very warmly about the man now. So I can't throw stones at anybody else for being a Cleveland sports trader in terms of who you uh, befriend or or get to be on good terms with. On uh, that story there, you know, Chuck Daly, I, I remember going back to the 80s, that he was somebody that uh, both my mom and I really liked. My mom thought he was a class act, the, the brief period of time that he was here. I think that was under the Stepien, uh years when uh, we were so put upon as a team. And uh, I always thought he was a class act even as I didn't like the Pistons of that era, sort of how I always respected Joe Sackick, even though I hated the Colorado Avalanche and everybody else on the Avalanche. So I'm at a loss for that, except that I will say that Daly is always somebody, I think, that had a good sense of team chemistry and what would make things fit together and not fit together. And it is true, we can lay a lot of this at Jordan's feet, but again, Barkley didn't want to play with him. Some other guys didn't necessarily want to play with him. I believe his relationship with Magic sort of ran hot and cold at various times. I don't know if Bird would have wanted to play with him. So it could have just been Daly taking the cold but necessary view of it might hurt team chemistry if he's here. That's my stab at it. Ben, how do you see it? What would account for Chuck Daly being at all hesitant about bringing Isaiah onto the Dream Team?
2: I mean, under normal circumstances, It was a, it's, a, it's a weird year in the mid eighties for guards, and there were a lot of great players in the field I'll tend to forget that they weren't even on that team. Before uh Chris was ultimately swept they were discussions that Shaq was gonna be on was rumored as being one of the few cuts that was
0: That's an excellent point. Although that's one of those things where the talent gap was such that even if it wouldn't have been ideal, you 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 could have moved other guys into that spot for at least a handful of minutes here and there. But that's an excellent point. Uh, and and by the way too, uh, Ben, it's worth noting, and this is something that doesn't really get talked about that much. I'm not sure if they even talked about it at all in the uh, documentary. But it, it, this was a thing where it was it was meant to be essentially sort of uh, you know. Uh, a a thing to remember him by, so to speak. This was about uh, eight months after, maybe, the Magic Johnson HIV announcement. So this is a thing where, if you look at it in that context, you know, again, with so much that was unknown, especially about it at the time, you wouldn't necessarily look at that and think, oh, that's okay, Magic and Stockton can both take on a whole bunch of minutes. You had to be looking at Magic, in a certain extent, going, we'll take what we can get from this guy. And I don't remember that uh, he, did, he was short on minutes during this thing. I think he played a lot. But it, I think it's fair to say going into it, Ben, you could not have necessarily assumed, oh, that's okay, we can only carry two point guards because Magic will carry a lot of minutes along with Stockton.
2: Because at that time, was, we tend to forget that during that time, 88
0: had long, and had issues with so it doesn't shock me that the team was big. It was. That was the makeup of the team, and uh, for those reasons, uh, you're right, the memories of 88 were, were ringing in their ears. So uh, that's some thoughts there. You, you more so posed the question, Bob, than answered it. So let me turn to you and say what do you think might have been the reason for Chuck Daly being hesitant about Isaiah being on the Dream Team?
1: Exactly, it was portrayed well in, in the, in, in the series and, uh, what both you and Ben said is true. Uh, the team chemistry maybe not wanting to agitate people because, uh, Isaiah certainly did hang up and they brought it up well his his individual, uh, battles with other members of that team that maybe became a little personal. And, uh, I will not, uh, deny that Equal reason to keep Isaiah off the team. I just uh, the fact that my only my only consideration was that it it wasn't you know that Michael Jordan denied anything having to do with
0: it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, nobody with half a brain should have believed that all along, anyways. And his <laughs> his his denials were always sort of cutesy poo, anyways. So again, he was never pounding his fist down and saying no and. Certainly never going to the, at least he didn't lie and say, no, I wanted him on the team and they wouldn't take him. That would have been extra shameless had he done that. But, uh, you know, at least it wasn't that. But in in terms of the the narrative of of Jordan's veracity, again, this is something that Ben and I explored a lot the first time around, and these things just sort of reinforce that narrative. And there are some other things that have come out of this uh, as well, and this is something, Bob, that we talked about, uh, off air previously. I don't know if this is anything that you were uh, if you had heard anything about at the time, but inevitably, as these names are coming back into the limelight and people are talking about these these uh, figures on Twitter subsequently, the first I saw of it, I don't know who it was that unearthed it, but I did see that there was a Dallas sports writer And I'm not going to mention his name because I'm not a big fan of what I think are people trying to take situations and make it about themselves. But he was, and he was maybe not the only one, bringing up things about Mailman Malone. Like, oh, did you know? And it turns out, yeah, this is some pretty scummy stuff. And it's all been substantiated here by court cases that uh, he fathered a child. I think he was 20. The girl was 13. What I don't know is if she was 13 when the child was fathered or when she gave birth, which conceivably puts it back to age 12 when the kid might have been conceived, which conceivably, if that wasn't even the very beginning, it just gets even worse from there. So, this is one of these things where I, I loathe this whole thing of people trying to get attention for themselves by digging up the history of other people. Generally speaking, I'm opposed to that. This is one of these times, though, when I will say, on the other hand, I mean, this is something that's pretty abysmal. You were talking about statutory rape, and one of those things where 20 and 13, I mean, this isn't like, you know, 17 and 364 days or anything like that. Uh, th- this is this is a fairly egregious example of of, of that. and Because uh, I, I think most people would say, generally speaking, uh, the younger somebody is, the further away from 18, the more egregious it would probably be. And he has basically managed to skate in terms of this sticking to his reputation. So this is this is the closest I will ever come to condoning something getting dug up about somebody. But I go back around too. If you were that uh, young lady at the time, now certainly older, the child now, I guess, in the 30s, uh, it can't be fun for them. I mean, they're having to relive all of this just in the name of bringing down Mailman's Malone's reputation. So in the end, I'm not in favor of this because I'm not in favor of shooting the hostages, and that's what seems to have happened here. You're going to be getting shrapnel on other people when you go to go after uh, Mailman Malone because they're having to relive some things that may not be as pleasant for them to go through. So uh, I I know that this whole thing of of hunting down stuff about people and and, and making it uh, a topic on Twitter, I know this is always something of interest to you as well, Bob. Well, you you hit it
1: right on the the head, Rick. Uh, unscrupulous in a way, you know. But, you know, we know, we all know how competitive the sports talk, sports journalism business is now, and that you have to latch onto anything you can to get uh, to get clickbait. Uh, it's uh, it's something that I that I'm just sorry that it came out because it didn't have to do with Michael Jordan. In fact, as, as you know, uh, the Carl Malone, although his play was shown, uh it was Stockton who was interviewed for uh the last dance throughout. And you know, it, it just I guess Rick maybe it's a way of tying in today's social media uh going back when it wasn't prevalent or what when it wasn't basically around before and it's sort of a, a mirroring of the two.
0: Yeah, I think so. And this is one of these things too, where I just wonder because of the two, John Stockton, because he stayed with Utah the whole way through his career, didn't do the ring chasing with the Lakers that Malone did in 03-04, Malone is more so thought, I'm sorry, Stockton is more so thought of as the guy who quote-unquote did it right. It's also one of these things, too, where Malone has also been the subject of some derision for, as was talked about in the documentary, getting involved in pro wrestling, especially during the NBA Finals, uh, for for his self uh, diagnosed being a, a black ragneck. I think he has talked about himself in that sense before, of uh, being a country guy and some of the things that go with that. So my old man has not always been the most fashionable guy in, in that sense. So I wonder if it's not that it's a little bit easier to drag him for the sleaze. If it was Stockton that did this, would it have gotten dragged up just because he's always been a little bit more respected by the media and, and society? I'm not so sure, but Ben, what are your thoughts on this as far as uh, the mailman getting dragged by this? Because you and I talk all the time on air and off air about social media, the way that things come up, the way that narratives get shaped. So this attempt to reshape the narrative of Carl Malone's life by bringing this up at a time when his name was back in the news because of the end of the documentary. I mean, it's really not.
2: Karl as, as a player in the league was very, you know, he was somewhat outspoken and then sort of soft-spoken at times, but he wasn't exactly one of those guys that you would say would be very gregarious or very, you know, more coming with a lot of things. So I've always learned just how people are who were like that. There's a tendency to things will not stick to that because you really don't know what they were thinking or what was going on at the time. And again, we also know too that Came out in 1998, the internet was still really in its true infancy. And unless you were a diehard NBA fan or a jazz fan or anyone that then we sort of the tabloid circuit at that point, it probably didn't come up on your radar as much as it probably should have. And again, again I go back to this previous point that Karl Malone as a player kind of outshone Carmelo as a human being. Let us not pretend there was a
0: and that's that's a that's a sociological question that we just can't answer in terms of the fact that he doesn't necessarily conform to expectations in some of the ways that you outlined and some of the ways that I outlined and, and something like this, is, 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 does he get dragged for something like this because he doesn't conform to expectations or is the iconoclastic nature of the man part and parcel of this because clearly this is a man that did not uh, respect the boundaries of I don't know what the age of consent is in Louisiana. My guess is it's a little bit more generous than some places in the country, but I'm sure it ain't 13 or 12, as the case may be. So, again, the fact that he, you know, marches to the beat of his own drummer, on some of these things it's harmless, on some of these things it's harmful, and I guess it all can't be unwrapped. It's the same man doing this all the way around, and it's an interesting, unanswerable question as to, uh, what makes him do the things he does, what makes us react in the ways that we do to him and don't do, and whatever. So that was another thread that kind of came out of this as well. And uh, so what I will do now is I will turn to you uh, first, Bob, and see, uh, were there any other threads that came out of this thing uh, that, you, that are sticking in your head that we haven't gotten to yet? Uh, two, two
1: different things. Maybe go one at a time, and okay. they sort of tangential a little bit. But the whole bit about that—that uh, that, you know has been documented of Jordan wanting to, you know, resurrect this, which could have been done years ago, and getting in touch with the producer the day after the Cavaliers and LeBron James won the NBA championship. Uh, I found that to be, you know, fascinating, and, and also to the extent where LeBron had lobbied. Uh, ESPN to move up the the timing of the, of the release of this, which you know sort of negates that and and sort of says, well, you know, LeBron and and Jordan, we know he respects him and we know that number twenty three, but I thought that was an interesting aspect. Uh, didn't have to be brought up in the certainly in the, in the uh, last dance, but I thought it was uh, uh, an interesting uh, result.
0: Well, I hadn't heard anything about the latter point. That is interesting, about any of LeBron's thoughts about the timing of the documentary. Certainly the part about uh, that that Jordan had the meeting with the director uh, on the day of the parade, and that 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 is the day that they basically, in 2016, came to an agreement that this then 19-year-old project would finally come to fruition in some form or fashion. That part of it there, I, I think it's, you and I talked about this a little bit off air, it's one of these things where, and as I turn to you, Ben, you and I always talk about, not just in basketball, but in media and society and everything, narratives, controlling narratives, how things are framed. And so much of this goes to the whole thing of the greatest of all time, which a lot of people at this point have made into a mano a thing between uh, Jordan and LeBron. Uh, I think, again, there's some names that belong in that discussion, but they are basically Put on the main—they're put on the periphery by the mainstream, whether it be Oscar Robertson, whether it be Kareem, whether it be somebody's other guys. They're thought to be a little bit more peripheral to what is now a mano a mano kind of discussion here. And that I think, based on the timing, it has been—I I think it is almost beyond dispute that it got to a point where Jordan, particularly after such a long and fruitless period as first a general manager, he also had to come back as a player, equally fruitless. And then as an owner, which hasn't gone so well, that, that, that this just smacks to me of Jordan wanting to basically grab this by the reins and say, listen, do you remember who the hell I am? I'm Michael Jordan, let me tell the story. And, of course, in 2016, Jordan couldn't have forecast that this would have all shown during a pandemic when we were a captive audience more than ever. So it played out even better in that narrow, limited sense than he could have thought in terms of shaping his narrative. But, but to me, Ben, it's, it's beyond dispute that that's what Jordan was looking at here. And that after the the entirety of LeBron's career going forward to that point, to the third title where a lot of people were starting to put him in that discussion as the greatest of all time, that it was Jordan's attempt at that point to say, hey, whoa, well, not so fast. Remember me? Well, I think they're are-
2: And the took between him and Will Fox during the time, there were discussions I remember. After.
0: we talk about these things, uh, the threads coming out of this, obviously there's always going to be the economic ones, as as Ben indicated there, in terms of the Jordan memorabilia and people starting to pay more uh, for that. So that becomes a part of it as well.
1: And and guys, if I can sort of, you know, uh, again, a a tangent and and maybe put a a wrap to, to this, which just comes out of it, my curiosity of... The greatest of all time. Uh, two things I'll say. one, uh, I heard Tom Brady interviewed recently and, and I truly believe him in saying he doesn't care if he's the greatest of all time. now what 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 his legacy is it will be and what he can he can control he can. Uh, I'm curious that's one thing I'm curious about whether you think that all of the great players really care if they're considered the greatest of all time and secondly, I, I rail against it as a topic on sports talk shows. I think it's it's lazy. When when the first the, the, when when that's going to be the topic of the next segment, I change I change stations. I, there, it, to me, it's just uh, it's, I I never really cared. You know, everybody is great. Different times, and I just was curious about both of your opinions about. What athletes think about that, and you is, as very seasoned uh, sports journalists think about that g- general conversation in any sport of the greatest of
0: all time. Well, that's a thing where I will say, first of all, I think the debate, if it can be done well, is a debate worth having. I will refer everybody back. One, one of my favorite FBH uh, Lounge mini-episodes is number nine fifty. Uh, where FBH uh, Lounge dignitaries uh, Steve Callis, Chris Galloway, and myself are reviewing the results of our balloting for the top ten players in NBA history. We went through that. We went through the honorable mention, the merits and demerits of the, the players involved. If it can be done well, as I feel like we did it, that'd be one thing. I agree with you that it's generally done in a mouth-breathing, shallow kind of a way. So I think the way that Sports Talk generally does it, is pretty much something that I'm not interested in personally. And I will say, too, as far as the place in history, I think, I hadn't heard Brady say that, I think it's atypical. Because I think there is, and we saw it with Jordan in this thing, and we've seen it with LeBron. There is a megalomania when you are at that level, and maybe that's what it takes to fuel you to whatever degree, but I remember a thing from Newsweek magazine. This was... uh, The second term for Clinton, but it was before the Monica scandal, and it was a thing where it was talking about Clinton and the people in the White House looking for his place in history, and that there was even a half-joking thing in there from one of his advisors about running opposition research on previous presidents to try to leak out things that might not make them look as good compared to what Clinton had accomplished. And and I think to that, most of these ones, they want to be thought of as one of the best ever. It's not enough in a lot of instances. The the same thing that drives you to want to be president makes you want to be remembered as one of the best ever rather than a failure. And if you are an elite all-time athlete, typically I think you would want to be thought of as the best, or at least the best at at your position. How do you see it, Ben? Ben?
2: Things like this, because it's always sports is a very human narrative. At the end of the day, we can have constant arguments about different players and different because we all have different viewpoints. In taking the question of the athlete, I think most athletes probably don't care, but there is enough greatness out there that we've seen players over time. Guys like Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, another name that kind of literally kind of. Over time, would be Wolverine. Guys yeah. who cared about their craft so much that they wanted to be the best thing that they could be at the end of the day. And they're going.
0: Is And I'm sure you can relate to this, Ben, as I keep saying, you and I really are historians on sports. I've had people say to me that my opinion is invalid when I go to, say, uh, Walter Johnson, for example, best uh, baseball pitcher of all time. Well, you never saw him, you never heard him. Well, okay, but I can get enough of a context from the records, from the level of competition he was up against. Uh, compare him to pitchers of his time. How much better was he than what he was going up against at the time? There are ways that you can do a snapshot without ever having seen somebody. But I've had people say to me, I think inaccurately, I cannot assess players before my lifetime and who will even act like I'm a hipster if I uh, will put somebody up at that level before my time. Willie Mays is much the same. I would consider him to be the best all-around baseball uh, hitter of all time, taking fielding into account as well. Uh, Best all-around non-pitcher, I guess you would say and I've had people give the same argument to me as well, that I'm not qualified to assess Willie Mays. I would beg to differ, but uh, it, it's all about the context, doing it the right way, assessing the right way, and like I said uh, in, in the lead-up to uh, when I threw it to you there, Ben, about if we're going to have a conversation on the best players of all time, I, I think that you can do it, but you got to do it in the right way. You have to do it in an intelligent way. I think that's what we did with number 950 going through on the basketball thing, going through all of our ballots, and everything, so I guess it would be a qualified, quasi-disagreement with your point, Bob, because to me it's all about how you would have such a debate, but again, I I think if you're going to, to me, if you're going to do it along the lines of the discussion we're having here today, that's exactly what you would want to do.
1: Rick, uh, uh, two things. Uh, One, um, the most amazing thing about one of the things that's uh, underlooked about Walter Johnson now, 60 years later, he resurrected himself as a great defensive tackle.
0: That's right. And that, and that took a lot of stamina to That's come right. back you know, be a multi-sport uh, athlete. Let's go Browns. <laughs> <laughs> and and lastly,
1: uh, something that I think may be a, a, a great conversation for another time is the players that you most like to watch. And I'll just limit it right now to because I, I heard a talk about the other day Uh, NBA Guards, Um, and I thought about it, and I said, the two favorite NBA Guards that I ever saw play were Pete Maravich and
0: Earl Monroe. Yeah, I mean, and look, Monroe was before my time. I haven't seen as much tape on him. Maravich, uh, I I got to see firsthand a little bit and have seen a lot more tape on him. I am with you on that. Pistol Pete is one of my all-time favorites, either aesthetically or overall in any sport. Uh, I would agree. On that, uh, how about you, Ben? Anybody comes to your mind as far as ones that are just, uh, especially on an aesthetic level, somebody you just love to watch? I mean, if, if we're
2: talking aesthetic level, I mean, obviously we, we bring back into the mid to the 90s. Goals, essentially. I mean, Gary Payton was arguably one of the more intriguing guards of the 1990s. To go back to the, even some of these older timelines, Jerry West yeah. who was a fantastic player who could.
0: Timeline, how much better they would have been with the ability to spread you know, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, I mean, one of the great aesthetic crimes in history is we never got to see... I mean, yeah, Pistol Pete played out the latter part of his career short, though it was, with the three-point line, but if we could have seen prime Pistol Pete with the three-point line, uh, that would have been just absolutely amazing, and that's just one of those things where... Uh, I suppose we'll need uh, fan fiction for that kind of thing, if there is such a thing. uh, Alternative sports fan fiction, if that's not a genre, maybe we need to invent it. Uh, Maybe somebody out there can get to work on this while the quarantine is still going, and we all have time on our hands. But uh, one of the great things about the quarantine, such as it is, there are not a lot of great things about it, but with all the time we've had on our hands, uh, it has been good to be able to have Uh, these type of in-depth discussions as we've done on the show. We've done longer, uh, more involved discussions during the period of the quarantine than we've done in quite some time. And it's just a a pleasure to be able to get folks together to be able to discuss this. And uh, Bob Glassman, once again, I have to say thank you for conceptualizing the idea of part two, of following up on some of the things that have really come out, even in the aftermath of when Ben and I did the Last Dance Review, what is now part one, because as you said, there were things, this continues to be a topic of fascination, as long as there's no sports here, and as long as people are still responding to what happened there and some of the assertions made, this really did need to be done. I want to thank you for your part uh, in coming up with it and helping to make it happen.
1: Uh, Rick, Ben, thank you. Again, I'm humbled. Uh, it's always enjoyable, and look forward to coming up with another uh, thread that uh, you all think the same and uh, contributing, um, always love it. Thank you
0: very much. Thanks, Bob. It's always great to have you on. And uh, Ben, uh, the same obviously holds true for you. Uh, this this was great to be able to get into some of the threads that we had the first time around and, and sort of be able to revisit and extend it from there. Really, really excellent, Ben. Can't thank you enough. No, I- Yes, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> One can only hope, and we'll continue to monitor that as we go along. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for this mini-episode of the FBH Lounge.